welcome to Define the Relationship podcast, a podcast where we explore the relationship we have with the Bible and ourselves. I'm one of your hosts, Darlene Enstick. And I'm the other host, Ted Enstick. And as you can tell from our names, we belong together. I just defined the relationship. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to uh, today's podcast where we are looking at chapter 13. We're getting close to the end of this book. Hooray, what hooray. Are we gonna do? I don't know. We're going to be done. <laughs> oh, who's coughing now? <laughs> so let's just defining. Speaking of defining the relationship, we uh, we usually set up for this podcast, and and you accost me for how I'm always clearing my throat. And yeah, putting a microphone in front of Darlene is a trigger for her to start clearing her throat. So I have a long line of uh, throat clearers in my family. Yes. So it, I come by it honestly. You know, just what's, gotta... what's interesting is you can go like days in a row without clearing your throat, but as soon as a microphone is put in front of you for a podcast, you start clearing your throat. Yeah. So, so how does this make you feel in our relationship? Well, <laughs> what's that uh, misophonia or whatever where people have this uh, thing where yeah. it, like, certain sounds can be like, like kind of like fingers on a chalkboard or I think I have chomping, that. chewing gum. And I know there's certain sounds that I make that put you into that state. And this clearing of throat thing is probably the one that... Uh, it really bothers you. It really bothers me. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's... We we're, define we're gonna, that. We'll define that part of our relationship. <laughs> For me, anyone, if anybody's eating a banana, I just like, oh, I can hardly stand it. We won't do that into the microphone to no. <laughs> mimic that. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Well, we, di- we digress. Moving, moving into the Bible. So chapter 13 is called Figuring It Out. Well, finally, we're going to figure some things out. It's, it feels wrong to have a chapter titled that when you've basically the premise of the entire book is how it's ambiguous and this isn't about figuring it out. And then he's like, it's a bit of clickbait because I don't think we're going to quite figure it out in this chapter. So don't get your hopes, don't get your hopes up. (laughs) So one of the things Pete starts this chapter with is about how the new Testament is like, um, reading someone else's mail. Yeah, this is, I'm, um, this is so helpful, I think. Pete is a really um, strong scholar, has done a lot of the academic work, has all the credentials and all that kind of stuff. And one of the real services that he has done in the books that he's written recently, including this one, is he really packages important ideas in simple metaphors and ways. And he's been doing that throughout this book. And I yeah. think in, in some ways this... Reading the New Testament is like reading someone else's mail, um, not only being clever, but it actually connects well with the reality that much of the New Testament is made up of letters written by um, people in the early church to communities. And uh, one of the things that ends reminds us about reading somebody else's mail is often we don't know the context of what a letter that we might read from somebody is relating to. Was there a previous letter, a phone call, um, some other kind of connection, some issue that's assumed in the letter that we don't have any knowledge of? Not to mention, when it comes to reading New Testament letters, is that these are 2,000-year-old letters. And so there is the way the world works. There's language. There's all kinds of aspects of culture that we do not have an insight into in a very easy way. And so... um, Okay, I have to ask you this question. Oh, you do? Yeah. Have you ever read somebody else's mail? I'm not... I I mean, like, actually got somebody else's mail that I shouldn't have gotten and then opened up the letter to to read it? No, I don't think I've done that. No? No. Okay. I have. Apparently, you have? (laughs) You know that it's a crime? (laughs) 
Well, a, no. Well, at least maybe. I, I mean, don't know if it is in Canada, but it isn't in the U.S. apparently. No. Okay. I mean, this is maybe a little bit different, but I mean, I confess to reading um, my kid's journal. So that's like reading somebody else's mail. Like when they were little. When they were like... This isn't the confession podcast, Darlene. <laughs> I know, but I need to. That's a that's Nadia Bolz-Weber's <laughs> podcast. So we can maybe try to get you on there. <laughs> but no, ca- I think oh, the way I connected it is that, yeah, like when you're, when you're kind of popping into something that you don't know a, necessarily a lot about, then it can be like, oh, I wonder what... I don't understand where some of this is coming from, right? It's yeah. like you have this sense that you're given like little pieces, but you don't know everything. Yeah. And I think the thing that um, just in this chapter was sort of driven home for me and reinforced for me in a way that um, kind of the kind of way that a light goes off, you know, goes on to say, okay, that's really significant. And that is that we, so often when we're reading the Bible, we miss the fact that this is a specific type of literature we're reading, and we don't we don't um, integrate the type of literature that we're reading into how we're approaching what we're reading. And so this idea that when we're reading a letter from Paul or Peter or um, other people in the New Testament that we really need to have it in our thinking as we read it that this is a conversation going on where we're only hearing one side of the conversation. Um, I know when I was studying 1 Corinthians in college, there, um, there's a lot of talk about those two letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and asking, well, was there, was there maybe like a, a 0.0 Corinthians? Like was there a letter to the Corinthian church that preceded those two letters? Um, were there letters flowing back because there's these conversations going on referring to things and we don't know where that information came into the conversation and uh, the community that's receiving the letter is obviously aware of what Paul is talking about. But we're not. But we're not and then we come to it and we say, well, this is the inspired word of God, this letter, and this is what this means. Paul has told us this is truth and this is what it means and it's like, really? Well, and also, I mean, you were saying before, it's a crime to open someone else's mail. But in Are this, we committing a crime when we're reading the Bible? But in this case, we're like, we're meant to read it, though. It's, it's right? If it's supposed to be for us, for our, for our good, even though it wasn't written for us, it is for us, what... You know, it wasn't written, sorry, it wasn't written to us, but it, we do have an understanding that it's still for us. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of the confusion is that, you know, normally it's a, you know, like you said, a crime to open somebody else's mail. But in this scenario, we're actually being invited to step into this mail, but how we, what we take from it, I think sometimes is a crime, Yes. You know, like yeah. it's a crime how we read the New Testament yeah. in some senses. Yeah, like Enns makes this statement in the first part of the chapter. He says, letters, from his perspective, are the perfect format for a sacred book that is inviting us into kind of a wisdom working process mm-hmm. because they are there's something intimate about a letter it's a it's a yep. personal interaction and you see this in the letters of Paul that there's like there's emotion and feeling in Paul sometimes there's anger sometimes there's love mm-hmm. sometimes there's frustration and exasperation like you you feel all the things that he's he's feeling as he's we would probably understand he's probably dictating the letter to somebody who's writing it for him um but uh, ends makes the point, and I think this is just again circling back, reinforcing the major theme of this book that uh, in these letters we see the earliest followers of Jesus working out, in other words, doing wisdom work of what it means to walk with God in their moment of time. So we see wisdom in action in these letters. Yeah. Um, but of course, the, uh, the other side of that is, is that we need to be very careful with how we take 
what's going on in that wisdom work and applying it to our time. And he, uh, this is kind of where we're going to move on to as we talk further in the chapter about some actual issues. Yeah, he says, you know, we can't simply drag these letters into our own life as is. We have to work at finding the connection between then and now. Yeah. And as we're going to look at, that can be a pretty difficult at sometimes confusing process. Yeah. So the historical particularities um, is one thing that we need to be conscious of, but um, there's always m multiple layers going on when we're, um, when we come to a text and we want to interpret it and kind of understand. Yeah. So, yeah. Like this, it reminds me that um, sometimes we, we relate in our own time, we relate to all kinds of different people and individuals. And we see, let's say we see a certain behavior or a certain energy in a conversation from somebody we know. And, um, you know, sometimes we move very quickly to kind of a judgment about what's going on in a situation by what we see. And good, good relating, good being a good human being sometimes often means having the humility to step back and ask some questions of ourselves about like what might be going on, like a, a kind of a, a simple meme that you see around these days is, you know, be, be very kind to people that you interact with, especially people you don't know, because everybody has a story. Everybody has a background, and there may be hurt in that background. There might be trauma in that background. A person might be just having a bad day. And there's a humility that we bring to relationships when we sort of aren't quick to judge what's really going on at face value. And I think when you read somebody else's mail or you read these letters, we sometimes are very quick to move to, well, this is what this means, rather than taking a more curious and maybe a humble approach that would say, okay, what could be going on here? Maybe we need to learn more. Maybe we need to read more, understand more before we can formulate what might be going on. And, and at that point, and we'll see this in the, in the second part of the, of the chapter, that you know, there, there's po different possibilities about what might be going on when Paul writes in a letter, um, specifically, like just let's maybe move on to the specifics. When he writes in the, the letter to the Roman church, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Why did he write that? Some people seem to think that that's a command and a New Testament law that we as Christians in our time need to follow. You've heard that recently about how, you know, God has put Trump into power or people use, so they pick this scripture and say, see, it says right here. And so yeah. this, we use this to, to back up the idea that, that God is instituting this person being in power and somehow use that to serve our purposes. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, just on the, on the face of it, this is a pro problematic way of working because um, do we really know? Do we really know that this was a command? Was it even a command at the time it was written or was it a suggestion, an encouragement to the community to think this way in a particular time? So, the, so just even at that level, like how do we know that this is a commandment that Paul is giving and how do we know that it's a commandment that's a universal command that needs to go forward into infinity? This is the one problem. The other problem, and, and maybe this is a, maybe a bit of an aside to how we read scripture, but it seems kind of ironic in many cases, people who um, pursue this line of thinking around the Bible, around this is what this means, and, and we need to do this in this moment because this is what it means, is they often... The, how should I say it? They lack a little bit of consistency that when the person who is in power is somebody that they do not like and do not support, they don't seem to be pulling this passage out. And in some cases, these people 
who are very supportive of the government are very unsupportive of the directives that come from the government because we think we have a right not to wear masks or we have a right to move around as we see fit, even though there's a health crisis going on. So um, that's maybe an aside, but it, in a sense, it's like there's seems to be a lack of consistency about the universality of this truth when it doesn't suit them. So, and one of the yeah. kind of famous, well, not famous, but the th- one of the idioms that gets used is that, you know, we cherry pick the scripture passages that serve our purposes. And I think... I love to pick cherries. And, and, and I'm, <laughs> to be fair, we all do it. Yeah. You know, so it's it's not, we can't have a superiority or a like a judgment about while well, some people do this, like we, we're all, this is all a downfall that we have. And so our, um, our call to humility goes across any line, all lines. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah. it gets, it gets so dicey because I mean, we, you bring up this aside and it, you know, I, I f- immediately feel like the temperature rising in my body, like, you know, because of the, particularities of our context right now. Like if somebody 2000 years from now heard you talking about masks and go, what, 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 what were you talking about? Like what, what is that? Halloween masks. (laughs) Like what? Yeah. uh, Yeah. So the particularities are so they matter so much and we shouldn't think that we understand the particularities. Like we just know them. They're right. Yeah. I mean, we have a, we have an inherent bias when we approach anything and this doesn't go away when we when we read i mean you have um a copy of the new test uh, sorry the copy of the bible the holy bible and when we read the holy bible it might be the holy bible but our biases that we bring to it aren't necessarily very holy and sacred they may actually be very distorting of what we see and what we read and mm-hmm. we might think oh that's just like my situation and we might have trouble realizing that well it's nothing like our situation it's very yeah. very different um like so it needs just, to come can i just I, this 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 it strikes me as i as i say that about like it may not be like our situation at all because part of our reality if we are honest about our situation is we are people that have a great deal of power and privilege and we have advantages in our society and so when we read the book of romans talking about the government and its authority um we're more closely aligned with that power in our time than that group of people that Paul was writing to most likely in Rome, which was an empire with a fairly corrupt emperor and where people that were followers of Jesus were actually very much on the margins of society and may have been at risk for violence and, and like actual persecution, like physically losing their lives. I mean, this is a time when Christians were literally fed to the lions as sport for the Roman Empire. And so when we read Romans 13.1 about the government, we don't read it in the same way as that community that received it. Like they are much more precarious in their society than we are. And so how can we, how can we say, oh, it's the same thing? Like yeah. I just, I don't know. I don't think we can do that. We can't just plop it from there into here. And that doesn't mean we ignore it either. It's, um, you know, what we have to do is we have to put it under the scrutiny of wisdom. Yes. So we got into one, ah, it's not even that hot topic, the government and our, uh, I mean, it it may be, but there's ends, um, kind of brings up all kinds of things that, um, are hot buttons, um, the role of women and homosexuality and slaves is enough in our history to make us feel smug about in, in a sense that, well, that's not an issue for us anymore. Um, when in fact the story of slavery in, in our country, in the United States is still very much a part of, 
it still very much informs our um, our biases and our 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 systems of how we treat people. But how how where do you want to take this, Ted? Like what? Um, so well, there's some very specific verses that ends kind of deals with and and invites us into a wisdom exercise around um, verses that can and have been very problematic for us and really have a way of dividing people who want to follow Jesus. Yeah, like I think, I think, I'm. I mean, I'm. I don't know what ends his motives are. I'm just reading his book. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's arrogant to think I can say, well, this is what he's trying to do here in this chapter. But I think it's really helpful to put um, these three particular issue, issues <laughs> beside each other, slavery, women's role, and homosexuality, because they they probably, for most of us, represent an issue that is kind of settled for us. Slavery is an issue that most, like he, he has this line in the book, it says, if you ask just you know, any person on the street about what Christians view, and these people could be Christian or non-Christian, what the Christian view is of slavery, you probably get like 95% of people saying, well, Christians are against slavery. And and yet, I think that would be ninety nine percent. Well, I, mean, I don't know, you know, Darlene. I know we live in crazy times, um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be as optimistic to say ninety nine percent. But anyway, um, so so this is this is an issue. Let's if we're thinking of a continuum of of struggle and wrestle with what it means to find wisdom in relationship to an issue. Slavery seems to be on the mostly settled right almost completely settled yeah and um the question around homosexuality around lgbtq um issues especially in the context of church settings you could kind of put if you're putting it on a continuum you put that on the other side of the continuum and say it's a very 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 contested issue in churches there are some churches that are fully affirming of lgbtq BTQ people and um, people and like just they're they're open and affirming to them and there's many many churches that are kind of continue to wrestle with it and then there's some that they don't even bother to wrestle with it it's just settled it's settled law for them and both um, sides if I if I can put it that way um, on the settled sides feel that they are being faithful to. Jesus faithful to the faithful to the faith yeah I mean so um, not to say anything about where anybody stands or finds themselves in relationship to that issue I think it's pretty fair to say that it's it's very there's a there's an active conversation where people I mean people who sincerely believe um, where they're coming from and and have Good faith arguments from where they're coming from. They're contesting that, and this is this is a, a, a big issue. And then you could kind of put the issue of women in the role of women more in the middle of that continuum. That I mean, for some, for a lot of communities, this has been settled that women's role um, in the church and society is quite progressive, and there are still some groups that continue to be see that a different way but not i don't know i mean people might argue with this statement but i mean it's very different than 30 years ago like when when we came into pastoral ministry um together um you were i mean you know you were a woman pastor and it was still pretty contested in the in the tradition that we're part of um and you were breaking ground being a pastoral leader in the first church that you served, and you were the first woman in uh, in our in I think in our province to be ordained as a woman pastor in our tradition. So it's very much at the forefront. And today, you know, there's many more women that are in leadership in our tradition. It doesn't mean that it's settled in everybody's view, but we've come a long way. But I think 
to get back to, I think, my earlier point about why I think Enns puts these three things together is he, he shows how they're, they're super similar in how Paul talks about them um, and or how the Bible talks about them. And um, we kind of maybe we forget that when we come to the scriptures with a settled view on slavery, we we don't pick up on the fact that, well, the Bible is actually mostly at best ambivalent about slavery and in some cases supportive of slavery. Outright. Supportive. Outright supportive slavery. And um, now Paul, New Testament, he's working out wisdom, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we already know from from previous chapters that he was reimagining the faith through the lens of Jesus being the Christ and how things, how the Jewish tradition was seen. So he, so he's quite comfortable with, with the wisdom working out as we've seen. Um, he doesn't su- seem to support slavery, but he also doesn't push against it in a way that would suggest he thinks it should be abolished. And so in history, when the abolitionists um, in our world worked to to outlaw slavery and move past slavery, um, Enns makes the point that it was a lot easier when you came to the Bible to be an anti-abolitionist than it was to be an abolitionist because most of the scripture at face value seemed to support slavery. If not, you know, it was ambivalent about it. And if you wanted to fight slavery as a Christian, you had to do a more of a reimagining work. You had to take um, the words of scripture and and rethink them to come to the abolitionist position. But we kind of forget that now because it's sort of like, well, nobody believes that slavery is a good thing. And uh, we don't really think the Bible is supporting this. But this is one of the problematic, confusing parts about scripture. And if we're thinking that there's some kind of statement that is, has a universal application forever coming out of scripture, if we come at it with that, we're going to, I think, end up into some cul-de-sacs where we get stuck and we're just going to hammer home some kind of authoritarian position when really we're being invited into something that's much more of a communal movement to, to work this stuff out. And yeah, so and so when you think of women, you can see where that's happening too, and also with LGBTQ. Um, in some ways, for people to rethink LGBTQ in the church, again, kind of at face value, the scripture seems to be more against that. But um, that shouldn't end the conversation for us because we see continually in the Bible this reimagination process happening. And so things that were abolished at one point are welcomed later. And so um, this is the wrestle we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't help also but think about um, in one of the classes that I'm taking now, and I just listened to a video lecture this week um, by Ron Dart um, that explored the... Um, six or seven layers of interpretation and the the literal is that all just six or seven yeah i know it's just a little bit but the 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 first one is the literal historical um layer and i I was trying to think of there was another word alongside that and i can't think of it right now so is that just to just to help make that clear what that you th- that is is that sort of like the f- what you see at face value like sort of the initial yeah i was just thing that comes histor- yeah i was just gonna say like that it's it's our entry point it's not i mean i i think even in other podcasts i've said you know it's um we don't take a literal under literal interpretation of the bible that we are settled on on that but on the other hand it's actually we do like that there is an appropriate way in which we want to understand words. Like sometimes you need to look at the literal word that is presented and, um, or a historical kind of understanding. So that's sort of at the very 
face value level. This is what it's telling us. And it, the literal is not like, it's not bad. It's just, it's just not enough. It's not whole. So it can be a portal into um, deeper understandings of wisdom. So to get specific on that then, so in a statement that Paul made in one of his letters that women should be silent in the church, it's not unhelpful to read that at a literal level and say, well, okay, it seems to be saying that Paul thinks women should be silent in the church. So there's kind of a clear meaning about what that sentence means. Yeah, it's like this is this is the actual words. So now let's look at the actual, you know, one one layer is let's look at the actual words. Right. And um but it allows you to step into then some other layers of interpretation so that you don't end there. It's a be a it's an immature um, faith, I think, to to stop there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so if we were to to not have an immature approach to a statement like that, then we would want to ask questions like, well, which women? All women? All women for all time? All women right now? Those really, really, really noisy women that happen to be a part of this community and seem to always be creating some conflict in this particular church because for whatever reason, like these are questions that would get raised, right? If we were wanting to look at it in a more, what's really going on here? Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul's a human being. There might be somebody who's annoying him in this community <laughs> and he's just wanting to get them to pipe down. It's a work in discernment. Um, and what, what do you think, um, I mean, Anne's again says the simple fact that Paul isn't actually consistent about women. You know, he, there that one verse is written there, but there's other verses where, you know, there's... Uh, where he's speaking in a different way about women, where he's praising women like Junia and Phoebe and... Um, entrusting roles to prophets, yeah. prophetesses, pro prophetess, a prophetess. <laughs> um, you know, he's taking for granted that women are prophesying and speaking for God. And, and teach. they're not doing that silently. Right. They're doing and that they're not speaking. doing it silently. And they're, so. and they're leading, which suggests that they're doing something with some authority over men. Right. right. So the very fact that, okay, we have these, we have these different examples. And so it should, shouldn't be seen as, oh, you know, we can't just, again, cherry pick that one verse and say, well, you know, let's use it to serve our purposes to yeah. hold down a group of people that that we have historically held down. Right. And women would be a, among one of the major groups that have been held down historically. Yeah. And it's a really good point about whenever there's the diversity of the perspective from the same person. Um, in this case, Paul, it should raise questions that don't like sometimes we just come with, well, it's settled fact that women are not supposed to have authority over men, should not speak, should not have any leadership role. And so let's just let's just interpret everything that's said about women from that lens. Because I've decided we've decided that that's what this is saying. Um, and. Ends is saying, well, okay, no, we should be a little more, we should take the diversity as being not something that needs to be harmonized into one way of thinking, but as like, well, there's maybe some flexibility and adaptability in Paul's thinking well, based think, on, on this, what situation he's dealing with. I think Paul is a great example of somebody that was always working within the confines of the cultural expectations, but was also pushing them. So even in slavery, he's working within the confines of this is just the way our society works. And he was pushing um, for slaves to be treated well. And, you know, so he was kind of like pushing things out, the expectations. 
Um, and he, these are examples I think that we see in Paul all the time, um, where, well, I know you've heard, you've kind of, we've done it this way, but now we're moving this way again. Um, kind of pushing out the, the, the Christian community, the followers of Jesus to be different than what they would have socially, culturally, religiously expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And isn't that what we're still supposed to do? Well, this is, this is Enza's perspective and he makes a pretty good argument to show how within our holy sacred scripture that this very thing is going on already. Mm-hmm. And we see the, um, in some cases, abandoning of what the tradition said was true to move on to something new. In some cases, you see the wrestle of the tradition around issues. And in some cases, you see you know, progressive movements where things are getting reimagined. And so we should not feel like we're out of line as a Christian community to be a part of that wrestle today. Yeah. And in fact, I want to get your feedback on this. In fact, N says, um, (laughs) this is a paradox only by disobeying, I'm using air quotes here, only by disobeying Paul's command, are we able to follow the path of wisdom he was following? Yeah. I really like that. Like that was, that was like, I want to say that again, only by disobeying Paul's command, are we actually following the path of wisdom he was following? Mm -hmm. So to me, I I don't know how that, I mean, you said you like that. I want to hear more about that. But to me, it's like, if we're not disobeying Paul's command, then we're actually not doing what Paul was doing because Paul was disobeying other commands that had come before. And he was like, no, not that anymore. We need to move in this way. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think like, Mind blowing. I mean, I mean, my only response is, "Amen." I, I, it just feels like that's exactly what Paul was doing. You, you see this in the, um, in some cases, right? We're seeing Paul's, we're reading Paul's letters, so we're getting into kind of the mind of Paul. But we also have um, story, history of, let's say, the the Book of Acts where you see the interactions between the leadership of the early church and you have these conflicts between Paul, who, although he was born and raised a traditional Jew, he was a Pharisee. He was like, like he had all the, he had all the letters behind his name in terms of being an authority in his tradition. And he pushed the boundaries because he was called to connect to those who are not part of the Jewish tradition, the Gentiles. And so he pushed the boundaries that the Gentiles were not expected to do the things that Jews were expected to do. And he pushed and he actually practiced things before he had permission to practice them. And then he went back and he said, well, this made sense to do. And then they finally said, yeah, it sounds like it makes sense to do that. And the and they kind of decided that what he'd already done was okay. And he continued to move forward. So um, you know how that, like, but that, but like that doesn't stop Yeah. at the end of our scriptures because, you, and, and if we, I mean, this is something that I'm, I'm kind of gleaning from the studies that you're doing right now, because you're studying those first five centuries of the church, part of history that we're not as familiar with, like, um, actually ends mentions this because most of us come from the Protestant tradition, which started in the 16th century, much of the way we view things, including the Bible comes from the thinking that came out of the reformation. And so we're very fixated on the last 500 years of our tradition. And we will be surprised. um, As we look at that, that things were much more, there was much more complexity in the approach they took in the early centuries and, of the church then then things became later an acceptance of 
complexity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, you say amen to, to that and I say amen to it as well, but it, I say it with fear and trembling a little bit. Like say more about that. Oh, just, it feels super, um, daunting. I don't know, even know mm-hmm. if that's the right word, or but maybe like vulnerable, it feels really vulnerable because you know, it, it reminds me like that can't be, that can't be me just kind of, or individuals just going off the cuff kind of reimagining as if it's just some brainstorming, let anything kind of come out. It, it feels like it requires us to be very connected Mm -hmm. to the spirit, to the, to the heart of God. Hmm. And, you know, um, I think it feels, that feels really vulnerable. I mean, on the, for us, the, the, we have evolved a lot in terms of how we read scripture and how we think about the role of women and now, um, how we, um, how passionate we feel about including, um, the LGBTQ community and, um, a welcome space and, uh, you know, an encompassing love Mm -hmm. and, um, that's hard to say out loud. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm wanting to be more bold, but I also feel very kind of humbled by this wisdom task. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right that there's something that feels a bit like we're um, we're on the on the high trapeze without a safety net. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it maybe feels like scripture is a safety net that if we just sort of stick within the parameters of scripture, then we're suddenly we'll, we're bounded. We're not going to stray mm-hmm. and get unsafe, and um, that's. I mean, it's understandable to have that approach, but it also seems to be taking, you know, Enz's argument that we're misunderstanding how the Bible actually works Mm -hmm. when we do that. And so, um, so I would say that. And the other thing I would say is that like, we're not kind of left adrift in this. Like we have, um, I mean, a big part of our big part of our perspective is that we are followers of Jesus and Jesus is at the center of our faith. And then when Jesus was asked, like, what really matters, like what what really matters in the scriptures? And he was thinking about what we know as the Old Testament scriptures. But he said, well, it all is about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so when we enter this process of of reimagining and doing wisdom work, like we're not, we're not adrift. We have, we can say, well, does this approach to these issues, are we being true to the great commandments of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself? Like this, um, like we're not kind of just freestyling. We're like, we actually have a, we have a rhythm that we're being, being welcomed into. Mm Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of, I was just remembering a post yesterday on Instagram by Nadia Boltz Weber. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you read it, but that's the podcast you're going to go on to do your confession about yeah. reading, reading yeah, yeah. journals. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, she starts like her little tag at the bottom is I love the Bible so much. And I just like, she's talking about, can I, I'm just going to read these quick little slides. So the Israelites lived peaceful peaceably in Egypt for several generations as resident aliens. But then there's this new Pharaoh and he's a piece of work, right? He was insecure. He was tyrannical racist who was lacking in wisdom. It happens. She says, if you pay attention, theoretically, yeah, if you pay attention to history, recent and ancient, it's easy to discern a pattern that emerge, 
emerges. Insecure leaders will always, always, always single out a minority group to blame. The smallness of a tyrant can always be seen in how they cast those with less power as dangerous. This is actually, sorry, it's Nadia's posting it, but it's um, from somebody else. And so we see this in the Bible, like the Pharaoh looks around, he's like, hey, these Hebrew people, they have lots of babies. And if they keep that up, this land is going to be filled with people that we don't want, right? People mm -hmm. who have a different language and a different skin color. And step one, identify which minor minority group is the problem. And then step two, come up with a solution. And first, he tried to deal with the Hebrew issue by enslaving them with forced labor. And that didn't work. And then he gets a couple of midwives, Pua and Shifra, and tells these young women to deal with the Hebrew issues by making sure when Hebrew women are giving birth that the boys get killed, but the girls can live. Because, like, what can girls do? Well, don't look now. Pharaoh, but five of them are coming for you. A Hebrew mother, her daughter, your daughter, and two midwives. The resistance. The resistance. See, Pharaoh underestimated the power of pissed off women who care about justice and want to protect the weak and guard the innocent. Mm -hmm. This is what the Bible shows us. Mm -hmm. And so we can look at at the Bible and we can say, oh, this is terrible. The killing of, you know, Pharaoh calling for the killing of babies. But we look and see um, what stories, what subversive stories are emerging. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is a, is a prime example of um, a resistance coming from the bottom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is. I mean, I was thinking about this back when we were talking about uh, does God influence elections, that part of it, mm -hmm. that I think often the people who have been quick to interpret the universal, universal need for the governing authorities to be sanctioned by God are those who benefit and are embedded in the power structures of our society. And much of the scriptural narrative is not written from the perspective of those who have power or are in power, but are actually the ones at the margins. And, um, and so maybe that's one way we might have a signal mm -hmm. that we are not doing our wisdom work that we are invited to when we too easily find ourselves just aligning ourselves with, with those that have the power. Yeah. And, um, Amen. and this is, I mean, this might seem like a, an aside, but I think it actually is, um, an aside that actually comes out of the central thing that's happening in the scriptures. And that is like often in the old Testament where we have so many problems with the way things are, um, just read the history of the Kings the Israelite kings, the, the pinnacle of power and authority in, in the people of Israel. And the way the story gets written is it's most often very unflattering to those who are in power. The mistakes, the sin, the awful decisions, the, all this kind of stuff is reinforced over and over again. And I, I mean, I got this from VeggieTales. I learned this one from VeggieTales. <laughs> but if you... If uh, you want to go back and um, the Esther, again, we have a subversive woman of resistance, the story of Esther, and you have King Xerxes. And I mean, when he was like, he had people writing history for him, and it was always about him and how things were so great because of him. And there's this part where his, his right-hand man, uh, oh, Haman, um, and it's, it's an, uh, it's an amazing part of the, of the veggie tale story where he's in bed and he asks Haman to read him a bedtime story. And so what does he do? Haman reads from the Chronicles of the Kings, which basically tells him about how great a king he is and all the great stuff he's done. I mean, it has almost no kind of connection to anything that we would experience in our historical time, 
But <laughs> here we have a leader that is so insecure that he needs people to tell him how great he is and everything that he does is great. And, um, but when you read the story of the kings of Israel, it's very rarely written in this way. And so that makes me say, hmm, there's probably something very authentic about this because the perspective is deprecating of the leaders. It's yep. not boosting it's them up. It's not and uplifting them look the power. Up. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so like I say, it sounds like an aside, but it's like, oh, this actually makes me think that there's something going on here in the scriptures. What makes it holy is that there's this process of the marginalized overcoming the powers of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's good news, actually. So, it's so actually, good. It's good news. Yeah. All right. Well, we've probably gone on long enough, and we well, can I just I want to say one other thing. Like I meant to say this before, but if you're interested in getting more into what it's like to read Paul's mail, yeah, um, a really good book, Paul Among the People by Sarah Rudin. We'll put the link into into the post and. Um, Pete Enns, on his podcast, interviewed Sarah, um, and it's, uh, I think it's podcast number, I've got to find it here, podcast number 116, Sarah Rudin, getting inside the head of Paul and Jesus. So it's kind of asking that question, and she is uh, very well situated to help us think through some of these cultural issues that might be going on in their thinking. So um, listen to that. If you're not into reading, um, it's about an hour podcast. Really, really interesting perspective. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us. Yep. Next, uh, next time we'll end, end things off in the book with uh, the last chapter. So I'm kind of sad for it to be over, but we'll, we'll find another way to continue. <laughs> We still have more Our problems to... will not be solved at that point, so we, we still we'll have continue. more things to wrestle with. Yes. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.